The real profound aspect of the last decade was what both of you have mentioned is not so much how much energy we've adopted, but the dramatic drop in costs and the fact that now we have a whole bunch of technologies at the doorstep. And so we are now positioned in a way that the next decade can really see that rapid expansion. This is John Riley. I'm a senior lecturer in Sloan, and I'm co-director of the joint program on the science and policy of global change. This is Ethan Zindler. I'm the head of the Americas team at Bloomberg NEF, a division of Bloomberg that does energy research. This is Lisa Jacobson. I'm president of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy. The council is a broad-based energy trade association founded in 1992, working on energy and environmental policy. So, uh, Ethan, uh, Lisa, I've been looking through your 2020 Sustainable Energy Report, and it's an impressive fact-filled volume uh, looking back on the past decade. So I really commend you for that. And it looks a little bit forward. I guess you completed this late last year, or maybe early this year, and a lot's happened since then. Uh, we have the elephant in the room, the uh, global pandemic. I heard the Federal Reserve Board chairman, I think, say we might be looking at 20% unemployment uh, and probably a recession staring us on its face. Is any of this still relevant or does it matter? Or maybe more realistically, has this changed the picture at all? I don't know how much we can talk about that right away, you can maybe give your thoughts, but then maybe that's a theme we want to return to as we go through some of the highlights of the report. Ethan, Lisa, do you have any thoughts? So first of all, the main caveat to everything here is we, like everybody else, are waiting to see how this goes. I mean, the first question is, is this going to be a shock to the economy that is substantial but short-term, or is it going to be a shock to the economy that is substantial and long-term? I think it's kind of hard to argue there would be anything other than a substantial shock to the economy one way or the other. But that is a big difference in terms of what kind of implications it holds for energy transition and the kinds of trends that we've seen overall. Um, All I can speak to is sort of the shortest term data that suggests that electricity demand, not surprisingly, is down. Although interestingly enough, it's not particularly down in the residential use of electricity, as you might imagine, because more people are at home. and That's actually up a little bit, but it's gone down in the commercial and industrial sectors. But electricity overall hasn't really gone down that much at the top, top line compared to the use of transportation fuels, which has just completely fallen off a cliff and created all kinds of other problems. So I think we should come back to this question, but I think it's a really interesting one because um, if it is a prolonged downturn, my personal view is that a lot of the trends that we've seen over the last 10 years will actually kind of go into fast forward. They'll continue on in many ways, but with a lot of interesting permutations. Well, that's interesting. interesting way to look at it, I guess. Certainly, a big collapse of the economy is going to be a big drop in energy use and a big drop in emissions, but not the way we want to do it, I guess. But I guess the other question, I mean, with uh, oil prices so low, is that really going to discourage the transformation to some of the other sources of fuel? Lisa, do you have any thoughts? First of all, thank you for the opportunity to do this podcast with you and have this important conversation. The Sustainable Energy in America Factbook, we are actually with the production in 2020 uh, in our eighth year of this project. And it aims to provide industry, policymakers, uh, the media, a fact-based assessment of U.S. energy markets. We are very pleased to be able to commission this report and have Bloomberg NEF 
as the primary author. And if you'd like to get a copy of the fact book, you can get it off of either the BCSE website or Bloomberg NEF. But if you go to the BCSE website, it's www.bcse.org slash factbook. You know, I think big picture in the short term, I've not seen a conversation at any level of government that's moving away from cleaner, more resilient energy resources. So in some cases, people are saying, you know, again, in the short run, some of the environmental goals or energy goals that were established at the state and local level in the last couple of years, if anything, you know, they're going to be easier to achieve, you know, so I don't see anyone moving away from the core values and desires of having more modern, efficient, reliable, affordable, clean, resilient energy. But in thinking about, you know, what's happening in the short term, there was just analysis that was out yesterday showing that in a number of clean energy sectors, about 100,000 jobs were lost in March. So there is a significant economic impact here. And as Ethan said, we won't know sitting here today what the world will look like and what kind of an economy we're going to be coming out of when we are able to restart the economy. But there are some very significant economic impacts in the energy sector and in particular for employees in clean energy jobs. So, you know, a lot of the conversation around our table is not so much retreating from clean energy because of the pandemic, but it's how do we get back on this strong, beneficial economic footing that we were having where clean energy jobs were the growth sectors of the energy workforce and you know they were benefiting communities all over the country and if if we are losing 100,000 jobs in a month from those industries that's very worrisome so hopefully both the private sector working with governments as we reopen the economy can restore and go back to a growth footing there just to add on one quick thing to that just to build off Lisa's point but also to answer your original question John which is Look, on, on, we think about doing the math on buying an electric vehicle. I mean, let's be honest, no one's buying any vehicles at all right now. And so it's not, it's not really an issue of people running those numbers at the moment so much as it is them deeply concerned about whether or not they have the wherewithal to make any major capital uh, purchases. So I think we have to wait until we get past this first phase to start to think about that. And also, frankly, you know, oil's trading at $20 a barrel right now. Maybe when we get past this first phase, oil prices will come up a little bit more once there's a bit more demand out there than we see at the moment. Well, that's, I think that's good to kind of get some of those thoughts out and let's see how they go. I think maybe the next thing is to just give the listeners a little bit of what you see as some of the highlights of the report. I mean, when I read it, I think the thing that stands out for me is you say, the last decade was a decade of profound transformation. So maybe if you could hit some of those things that you think make it a decade of profound transformation, that would, I think, be helpful. I guess I'll start. And Lisa, please just add on. I mean, I think to put it slightly in context, which is that, you know, the conventional wisdom about the power sector in particular was, you know, it's a giant sector. It takes decades to change. It moves very, very slowly. And so I think what was remarkable about the last decade was just how much stuff did change in in really a relatively short period of time. So just taking it sort of a, a couple kind of quick examples, the first being, you know, we got almost half of our power from coal, about 45% from coal generation in 2010. 
that number was down to 23% as of 2019. This year, you know, it should be noted, even pre-COVID, the number was starting to come under 20%. So the move away from coal was really dramatic. When you're talking about a, a massive power system like the United States, the second only to China, um, that kind of transformation is very large. On the flip side, um, of course, was the growth of natural gas going from about a quarter of our generation to a bit under 40% of generation, and then renewables jumping from about 10% to about 18%. And basically the entire, almost that entire eight additional percent came from, from wind and solar. Um, so that kind of move in terms of moving away from coal sources and towards renewables and that gas, and by the way, nuclear stayed about the same at about 20% through the whole thing, has meant that the U.S. power sector has much lower emissions, about 25% lower CO2 emissions than it did 10 years ago. That's the power sector. Worth noting, that's not the transportation sector, where the level of transformation was frankly much smaller um, but we definitely saw a very sharp rise in the number of electric vehicle sales in the last couple of years of the decade. And coming into this year, we're pretty optimistic that that trend would continue. Of course, as you noted earlier, oil prices have dropped, the economics are changing. And so, you know, it could be more challenging going forward there. The other piece, which I always uh, want to make sure we do mention, is that energy efficiency played a really important role. I mean, the start of the decade, we were coming out of what was then called the Great Recession, but maybe we'll rename that in the wake of what's happening now. But um, the economy basically grew every year of the decade, not spectacularly, it should be noted, you know, two to 3% every year or a little less in some years. But uh, our use of energy overall effectively uh, it, it did not grow at a particularly high rate. And um, that is not inconsistent with things that we've seen in other um, OECD countries, wealthy countries that, you know, that have heavy service sectors. But nonetheless, the growing efficiency of the U.S. economy was definitely one of the things that definitely helped. And then the last point I just want to make is that a lot of technology has enabled people to be much more conscious about how they use energy. Of course, this is part of the energy efficiency story, but it's also part of the move towards more distributed energy in terms of consumers either having solar uh, rooftop systems if they want, some very small number of cases, batteries. But in many cases, if you want to have a smart thermostat where you understand your energy usage in a much greater degree and depth, you can do that as well. And we do find consumers, are, are, there's been a lot of uptake on that. Now, the reality of it is only certain consumers are going to have or be deeply interested in this, but that's still, we have what we call sort of in the report, the empowered consumer who has much more uh, ability to understand how they, uh, they consume energy, um, but also make a lot more different choices about the types of places where they get power from and what kind of systems that they want to use. So those are some basic ones. I know Lisa may have, I'm sure I've missed a few basic points that Lisa may want to add on. Yeah, I know when we talked a little bit about this before, Lisa, you were, you were, you thought the empowered consumer and consumption side was important and thinking about security and jobs. Can you highlight some of those aspects of this last decade of profound changes? Well, just thank you. And building on what Ethan was discussing, when you look at things like corporate engagement in the energy sector, you know, one key metric is corporate procurement of renewable energy. But when you look at the fact book, you'll see it's not just a renewable energy story alone. It's energy efficiency, it's greening fleets, it's climate change um, and resilience objectives. But just looking for a moment at corporate procurement, we've seen, you know, just a sea change here. Um, in the last decade, you know, we pretty much had zero uh, corporate PPAs for renewable energy at the beginning of the decade. 
And then we ended up at the end of 2019 with over 18 gigawatts signed. And then when you look and compare that to renewable energy build across the country, you see a very strong demand and forward-looking market signal for renewable energy. And that's happening in and of itself, which is quite remarkable. But I think what it also goes back to is the economics of renewable energy that have changed dramatically in the last decade. We often focus you know, on wind and solar, and there are very dramatic cost reductions and innovations in those technologies. But if you look across the renewables fleet, hydropower, biomass, geothermal, you know, th- there's just tremendous opportunity for very flexible and uh, reliable, dispatchable renewable energy resources. And, and now we're seeing activity in the corporate sector as it relates to heating and thermal renewables. So renewable natural gas, hydrogen, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for corporates to get involved and drive demand in renewable energy. And it's not just in the power sector anymore. So I want to want to maybe push back a little bit or or ask a little bit of question. I mean, so you talk about the being a decade of profound change, but you also point out that in a lot of these things, renewable energy and switch from gas to coal should have reduced our CO2 emissions. But I think you point out the drop was 4% over the decade. And if we need to get to 80% below by 2050, or maybe even lower, then I was thinking of the analogy, if we're running a relay race, this was the first runner. They didn't drop, they didn't run their 20%. <laughs> they kind of dropped the baton, you know, 16% uh, short, and the next runner is going to have to go back and pick it up and run the next decade in order to catch up. So it was profound, but was it profound enough? Well, I don't think anyone would argue that it was profound enough. No, we're clearly off the mark. But I think there are lessons to be learned. And I think the model and the interplay between markets, policy, and technology and how that unfolded over the last decade can kickstart a lot more dramatic reductions in the future. But I don't think we can get away from the fact that in the United States, at least, transportation needs to be addressed much more significantly. We focused a lot on the power sector, and we continue to make progress there. Not enough, but we are making significant progress. And it's because of a combination of, you know, kind of the policy dynamic, the private sector, all of that feeding into business innovation. And we've seen change. And it has to be affordable. um, And it has to be communicated to the public. And I think in the power sector, that mix has occurred. I'm not sure it's occurred in the other sectors where we need to make more progress, like transportation, but also commercial and industrial. So I think, yes, we've accomplished a significant amount in an industry that people said couldn't change in 100 years. So we've made change. We can learn and look at why we've made changes. And now we just need to dramatically ramp that up and look at other sectors of the economy and see how we can take those lessons and apply them there. I'll just add one or two quick things, which is just that you know CO2 emissions, I mean, to be clear, the, the goal of what the Paris Agreement was, was to cut 26 to 28% by 2025. We have cut 12% from 2005 levels, so we're definitely not there yet. And it's not looking likely that we're going to get there in the next five years. So I don't mean to gloss this over, but it's it's a little bit deeper in terms of that context. We're, we're way below where we were again, you know, back in 2005. The other thing is the power sector, as Lisa notes, 
know, it cut its emissions, CO2 emissions by a quarter in a decade. That's pretty good. But your point still stands, which is the transportation sector CO2 emissions have been rising for the last several years. Um, and they will not, in my view, uh, that that sector will not decarbonize itself based sheerly on economics. There will need to be policy, strong policies put in place to make that happen and bend that curve. Electric vehicles are great and the economics are getting better, but we don't see that taking over the U.S. fleet of vehicles, you know, anytime before well into the next decade. And so you do need strong corporate average fuel economy standards to drive that. And the Trump administration has been very active about weakening those since the start of their administration. Yeah, I guess gas fracking has been the big story. And we have seen that in other countries where discoveries of cheap natural gas have quickly reformed the coal sector. But then after that, it's a one-off event and things kind of go away. And, you know, the 12% since 2005 was helped a lot by a massive recession. Uh, And then coming out of that, you know, as you point out, energy demand barely grew at all. But given that we've historically had energy efficiency improvement in the economy of one and a half to 2% going back decades, given that growth was only 2%, (laughs) that translates into no growth in energy use. And that's more of the normal business as usual than a dramatic difference from the past, uh, at least as I look at it. I guess maybe the the real profound aspect of the last decade was, I think what both of you have mentioned, is not so much how much energy we've adopted, but the dramatic drop in costs and the fact that now we have a whole bunch of technologies at the doorstep and so maybe maybe we are now positioned in a way that the next decade can really see that rapid rapid expansion. I think we've looked back in some of our work and actually looked statistically at when technologies take off nuclear power. And once they're at one and a half or two percent, then we have seen them grow to be 20, 25 percent of growth in a, in a decade. So maybe maybe that's where we are with renewables. I don't know. Do you have a sense of that? I mean, I would just say that the first half of the decade was you know, renewables growth was characterized by primarily, frankly, by subsidies. And then the last maybe half, even in some some markets last even year or two, has been characterized by cost competitiveness for renewables. And so the great news is, yeah, as we came to the end of that decade, the growth in renewables has, has been driven by cost. Um, and so you're right, that probably positions things well going into the next decade. The real battle that's shaping up, as you put your finger on it, is between the build of new gas versus new renewables going forward. There's no coal being built. And there's a lot of coal that's going to get retired. We're seeing that already. And the question is, how quickly can we retire the rest of the coal that we've got? And then what what replaces it? And I think that, that, that the economic competitiveness between gas and renewables is going to be one of the interesting stories going forward. Uh, our view is that renewables can undercut gas in a number of markets in the U.S., not certainly everywhere. If you're sitting right on top of a, you know, of a major production center, gas is almost free these days in some parts of the U.S., and so it's pretty tough to compete there. Um, but other places, you know, we think renewables actually does the trick. Yeah, and I think, and the good thing is, I hopefully people realize we're already seeing some of these benefits. I think I was reading a bit on acid rain in the Northeast, and it's dropped dramatically as a result of the switch from gas to coal. And so you're actually seeing evidence of, you know, faster tree growth and more lush forests as a result. So we are reaping some of the benefits. Hopefully, we'll, if we can see those uh, more substantially, uh, it will kind of put some extra oomph behind some of this, some of this transition. I guess the other, the other sectors that are really difficult, I guess they aren't 
that big in the United States, but things like petrochemicals, iron and steel, some of those things where I think there some of the options are the most difficult. Do you, did you look at that in your report and do you have a perspective on that? It was short answers. We didn't look at it too much in this report, but you're right that those are the areas where we, in particular, you need, we think efficiency has to be more of an emphasis going forward in terms of trying to reduce the intensity of their, of their energy usage. And then there's also the potential that we at Bloomberg NEF have looked at a fair amount, but isn't in the report too much, but just a little bit is to thinking a little bit about um, a hydrogen economy, which is a long way out and a long way from being cost competitive um, at this moment. Um, but has the potential to be used in more industrial processes in a way that can be lower, much lower emission. And the question really then is, can you find ways to create hydrogen that is cleaner um, and still cost competitive? One of the things that I think you know, is a cause for optimism is that if we get renewable energy generation costs down sufficiently, uh, particularly in parts of the country like the Southwest or in the windy parts of the Midwest, could you use very low cost renewable energy to power hydrolyzers to create hydrogen to then you know run some of these industrial processes possibly but now do all these things take place at the same time in the same place no and so that's the there's a lot of challenges around infrastructure to be addressed but yeah these are the industrial sector is one of the ones that's definitely in some ways kind of hardest to sort of identify what the answer is to i think for transportation it's a little simpler, which is if we just continue to push the auto companies to make more efficient vehicles, they will. They've shown that they can in the past. It's harder in some of these other sectors. Lisa, I mean, you're representing, you know, the corporate sustainability business council sort of thing. We work with a lot of industries in our program, and it does seem like industry really has embraced this idea that we need to kind of move further ahead towards sustainable energy. Can you talk a little about what is the business case for that? Is it kind of kind of their customers' demands? Is it is it from the investment side of the equation? Is it just cheaper? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and what are some of the limits of how far that can go, do you think, without the policy? Do we need policy supported or can business take us without any policy? No, I think it's definitely a mix of both. And you know, there's a lot of different examples I can give. But I mean, just big picture, if you went back a decade, you know, the conversation around ESG, environmental, social uh, governance conferences would be, or a climate change conference with business, you'd see the slide that says, why am I doing this? And then, you know, one of the main thing with brand, employee retention, maybe you'd see something on the third or fourth bullet on investor interest. And, you know, you really wouldn't see economics at all. Well, they would say, but if we want to go forward with a more ambitious plan, it needs to pencil out because otherwise we won't get approval. But they didn't have the data or you know, they didn't have the dynamics that would underpin that. Now, I think that slide would be completely flipped around right now at that same conference if you had it right in 2020. The number one thing would be economics and investor interest. And then it would be side benefits like employee retention or a brand. So I think the world has changed um, for many companies when it comes to the realities of thinking about energy efficiency and clean energy options and being able to execute on it in a much more significant way. So 
I think economics at, at the core is the, is the reason why companies will do more than just add-on activities. And I think it really is mainstreaming into corporate uh, governance. Yeah, we've been a little bit involved in working with some of the financial institutions and central banks recently in these kind of these moves to kind of have a more climate-related risk disclosure, both on the transition risk side, uh, investment in fossil energy, as well as on the on the physical risk. What are companies actually prepared for climate change? I guess that's probably a little bit outside the scope of your report on that side. But do you see this investment pressure and other pressures as being a significant additional push on on what companies are going to do? Yes, definitely. I mean, again, if you went back a decade ago, there would be conversations about, oh, uh, we received a questionnaire from a stakeholder group asking about climate change. You know, where do we put this? You know, now it is completely integrated into investor relations. So climate disclosure, not just on, you know, kind of emissions reductions, and but also in terms of resilience and risk management, I think are a big part of and, and fairly well understood, especially, you know, in the Fortune 500. So back to the maybe the COVID-19 pandemic, we're doing this, of course, online <laughs> or virtually. So none of us drove anywhere this morning to get to our to our offices, I guess. Do you think there's going to be a really different way of looking at uh, telecommuting after this? Is it going to be seen as more viable? And maybe that's one of the ways we reduce uh, transportation emissions? Or do you think maybe the lesson will be, gee whiz, we really need to see each other in the office more uh, in order to make things work? Any, ex I guess at this point, we're not really, this probably isn't research we've done, but maybe just our personal experience over the past month or so. Any thoughts? I mean, I guess I'll venture into the land of pure speculation here, which is just that, um, Look, I feel like there's been a lot of talk about reopening the economy. I, I don't think there's going to be a moment where, like, suddenly we, we, we flip the switch and things look like they did back on, like, say, you know, February 1st. In fact, I think it'll take maybe years uh, before we get back to where we were on February 1st in terms of the way that people comport themselves and go to work and crowd and jam onto trains and all that kind of stuff. I, hard for me to see how that happens anytime soon. And it's worth remembering that the way we lived our lives was we placed big strains on the energy system by insisting on all going to work at the same time, all coming home at the same time, using a lot of gasoline, um, using a lot of uh, other energy on public transportation. I think just generally speaking, energy usage, which is very spiky as a result of those patterns, right, you know, it, which sort of jumps in the morning, jumps in the evening, I think it's going to get a bit smoother. I mean, I, I don't, I, I have trouble seeing my employer sending us all back to the office at the same time, but I could see a scenario where it's half of us go back and then we switch 50% on, 50% for a while to encourage, you know, social distancing and spacing. So I think, I think you're right that it's going to change energy consumption patterns in pretty profound ways that, I mean, and again, just pure speculation, but I think will be potentially quite long lasting um, in, in many ways. Some people may permanently work from home or will have, again, a kind of a rotating system, um, but either way, it'll be less, it won't be what we had before. But I, at least, I mean, if you want to engage in the, in the world of, of speculation too, please. Well, I'll in. just say one thing. I mean, I remember like in the first week of, you know, kind of the national shutdown, seeing images of, you know, eight o'clock in the morning, LA, eight o'clock in the morning, you know, 
DMV, you know, the DC area where we live, I'm sure if we would have seen an image, you know, kind of traffic around um, the New York City metropolitan area, I don't think, and there were no cars, you know, you you almost could have had a rollerblader going down the highway, right? I don't think anyone wants to return to kind of what the traditional days traffic looked like in those, you know, any major city in the United States and probably globally. So, I think there's an opportunity here. And actually, you know, this is again in the world of speculation. We've been talking about transportation, which in the United States is really passenger cars, a big part of that conversation. We have a real opportunity here. Though I will say, I was on a, uh, an interesting call yesterday, and, you know, someone made the point, and, you know, they're not a behavioral ec- economist, but, you know, humans, you know, have short memory spans, you know, and they could just wake up, go back to everything as it was. I mean, as I agree with Ethan, I don't think it's going to happen immediately, but we could wake up two or three years from now and yeah, everyone loves their car, car culture, USA back. And, you know, so we do need to have some backstops here in the transition. But again, I think my point is we have an opportunity. It's a reset moment. And I think it's really going to require actually the business community stepping up and making sure that we can lock in the sustainability gains that we want to see over the next 20 years in a moment like this. Because everyone always says, well, we need a crisis, right? Well, we have a crisis. And so it is a time to, to make some assessments and kind of map out the world we want to be in, not just, you know, kind of go back to the things that we were challenged with before. So maybe, I mean, you're... I. I put you on the spot in a number of places, <laughs> making you speculate about what the impact of the COVID-19 was going to be and uh, a variety of things uh, which are beyond anyone's ability to guess. And your report was mainly focused on, you know, a fact book, fact and trends in the past. I think you you kind of talked a little bit about what it might mean for the next decade. But um, can you talk a little bit more about what you see? I guess, you know, I'm working with some folks and thinking about climate policy for the next decade. And I think there's a big belief now that the U.S. probably has to get to 45% below 2005 by by the year 2030. Uh, that's kind of the goals people are talking about, between 40 and 50% reduction. Is that feasible? I think anything is feasible. We don't know what is possible, but we have this unique moment in time. And I think one of the lessons that we've uncovered from the fact book is that the investments made in 2009 and 2010 in the United States paid significant dividends in terms of cost reductions and the transformation we've been discussing. And we have that moment again, and we have it globally, and we have it probably on steroids. If you look around the world at the stimulus packages and the amounts of money that governments are considering spending, uh, we have a real opportunity here And that is a lesson we learned, that making those strategic investments paid off and caused significant changes. And so now we're going to make another uh, set of significant investments, probably in infrastructure and in energy and in other parts of our economy. So let's make sure we're doing it in a climate smart way with the goals to reduce emissions and enhance our resilience in mind. I would just add on that that just to agree with Lisa that the stimulus bill of 2009, I would argue, is the most important piece of energy legislation maybe ever passed in terms of transformation. And obviously, it had a lot of money for a lot of things in there, but there were about $90 billion directed for clean energy initiatives. And 
look, you know, people are focused on certain things like Solyndra was like the black eye, but we wouldn't have Tesla today probably if there had not been money that went out under that program and a lot of other scale up that we saw in other technologies as well. So that was a moment that was taken advantage of to make some important long-term investments. And I hope we don't waste this moment. I have to say, I am, I'm hopeful that we get a stimulus bill that is focused on infrastructure and is inclusive of of cleaner and greener infrastructure, but I am concerned by what I'm seeing so far because it doesn't, we haven't seen anything start to move in that direction yet. And as Lisa points out, other countries around the world are doing this and the Europeans are going to use this as a chance to double down on their uh, investment in these technologies. And if you think about it from the U.S. competitiveness perspective, it could be a major opportunity lost if we do not uh, invest here. Yeah, I guess I was thinking back to my earlier metaphor of the relay race and you know if this was the relay race and the u.s team did last decade were we the winner of that decade <laughs> or are we kind of behind germany uh france maybe even china in terms of our push to clean energy do you have a perspective on that do we come in first or fourth <laughs> In terms of raw production of clean energy goods and services, China is by far the, the biggest. And in terms of install and the, the volumes of capacity of renewable installations, China is also by far the biggest. But has the U.S. developed important uh, intellectual property in, uh, in the last decade that positions us well? Yeah, I think that's right. I, but this is part of a larger question about whether or not the U.S. can and should be a manufacturing hub versus China. Um, frankly, all of which questions that are going to have to be somewhat reconsidered in the wake of COVID now, which is how much do, how much globalization do we want in our economy these days? I think those questions are definitely being reconsidered uh, in light of everything that's happened. Well, I certainly appreciate your upbeat look for the future. I, I think that's good news for all of us that, you know, corporate America is pushing ahead on this and we see lots of technological opportunities uh, it's kind of a shame that our policy environment has lagged, at least. Of course, we have many states that are taking very aggressive actions and pushing pushing the ball forward. So maybe uh, when those prove out to be demonstrations of how wonderful a sustainable energy economy can be, maybe other folks will pick it up as well. I don't know. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you this morning. Uh, any other final comments you want to make? Well, the only thing I would add to this conversation, you know, what's different from 10 years ago is the scientific, well, the scientific evidence was there, but not as well communicated and perhaps as thorough. You know, we had a pivot moment a couple years ago when the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came out with yet again an assessment report with some very stark findings about the impacts of climate change around the globe. But it was a different moment. And I think the corporate community, as well as policymakers, especially in the United States, and we go, you know, go to local as well as state and many federal policymakers, took heed to it. So we didn't have that kind of clarion call and urgent call to action with some very clear and very striking long-term goals like we did in the last couple of years. So I think, you know, we were talking about an incremental world, incremental change. Let's get to 20%, 10% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. As you pointed out, you know, we're looking at at least 80% reductions by 2050. And that's because of the scientific community clearly 
articulating that is the goalpost that policymakers and society needs to look to. We didn't have that kind of a scenario put for in front of us in 2009 in a mainstream way. So I think that is a really important driver for why we might see much better performance in the ne- next decade in terms of reducing emissions. I think Lisa makes a great point, which is just we're more informed now. So no, I wouldn't I wouldn't add much other than that I do think the one thing about COVID and where we are now is, you know, I don't know who, who said it, but we shouldn't let a good crisis go to waste. And that this is really an opportunity for us to rethink a lot of things about our energy usage. And I hope we do. Well, thanks, both of you. And, and, and Lisa, your last comments on the science of climate change strikes close to home for me. I've spent my 40-year career working on it. So if we've finally got the message across, maybe, maybe I can retire with some uh, ease of mind. Well, I, heard, I hear you. Our members hear you. But we need to do more. I mean, it, it's a moment to acknowledge, but not a moment to slow down. That's for sure. So thanks for that. Because without the scientific underpinning, uh, we don't know what pathways we need to follow. Uh, Ethan, thank you. Lisa, thank you. I've really enjoyed this conversation and thanks everyone for listening. Mm-hmm.